Part 6 of the History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume 2, by Friedrich Schiller. Translated by Reverend A. J. W. Morrison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Great as was the struggle to the King of Sweden to receive subsidies from France, and sacrifices independence in the conduct of the war, this alliance with France decided his cause in Germany. Protected as he now was by the greatest power in Europe, the German states began to feel confidence in his undertaking, for the issue of which they had hitherto good reason to tremble. He became truly formidable to the emperor. The Roman Catholic princes, too, though they were less anxious to humble Austria, had witnessed his progress with distrust, were less alarmed now that an alliance with a Roman Catholic power ensured his respect for their religion. And thus, while Gustavus Adolphus protected the Protestant religion and the liberties of Germany against the aggression of Ferdinand, France secured those liberties and the Roman Catholic religion against Gustavus himself, if the intoxication of success should hurry him beyond the bounds of moderation. The King of Sweden lost no time in apprising the members of the Confederacy of Leipzig of the treaty concluded with France, and inviting them to a closer union with himself. The application was seconded by France, who spared no pains to win over the elector of Saxony. Gustavus was willing to be content with secret support, if the princes should deem it too bold a step as yet to declare openly in his favor. Several princes gave him hopes of his proposals being accepted on the first favorable opportunity, but the Saxon elector, full of jealousy and distrust toward the king of Sweden, and true to the selfish policy he had pursued, could not be prevailed upon to give a decisive answer. Meantime, the imperial generals, deficient in both troops and money, found themselves reduced to the disagreeable alternative of losing sight either of the king of Sweden or of the estates of the empire, since with a divided force they were not a match for either. The movements of the Protestants called their attention to the interior of the empire, while the progress of the king in Brandenburg by threatening the hereditary possessions of Austria, required them to turn their arms to that quarter. After the conquest of Frankfurt, the king had advanced upon Landsberg on the Warta, and Tilly, after a fruitless attempt to relieve it, had again returned to Magdeburg to prosecute with vigor the siege of that town. The rich archbishopric, of which Magdeburg was the capital, had long been in the possession of princes of the house of Brandenburg, who introduced the Protestant religion into the province. Christian William, the last administrator, had by his alliance with Denmark incurred the ban of the empire, on which account the chapter, to avoid the emperor's displeasure, had formally deposed him. In his place they had elected Prince John Augustus, the second son of the elector of Saxony, whom the emperor rejected in order to confer the archbishopric on his son Leopold. The elector of Saxony complained ineffectually to the imperial court, but Christian William of Brandenburg took more active measures. Relying on the attachment of the magistracy and inhabitants of Brandenburg, and excited by chimerical hopes, he thought himself able to surmount all the obstacles which the vote of the chapter, the competition of two powerful rivals, and the edict of restitution opposed to his restoration. He went to Sweden, and by the promise of a diversion in Germany, sought to obtain assistance from Gustavus. He was dismissed by that monarch, not without hopes of effectual protection, 
but with the advice to act with caution. Scarcely had Christian William been informed of the landing of his protector in Pomerania than he entered Magdeburg in disguise. Appearing suddenly in the town council, he reminded the magistrates of the ravages which both town and country had suffered from the imperial troops, of the pernicious designs of Ferdinand, and the danger of the Protestant church. He then informed them that the moment of deliverance was at hand, and that Gustavus Adolphus offered them his alliance and assistance. Magdeburg, one of the most flourishing towns in Germany, enjoyed under the government of his magistrates a republican freedom, which inspired its citizens with a brave heroism. Of this they had already given proofs, in the bold defense of their rights against Wallenstein, who, tempted by their wealth, made on them the most extravagant demands. Their territory had been given up to the fury of his troops, though Magdeburg itself had escaped his vengeance. It was not difficult, therefore, for the administrator to gain the concurrence of men in whose minds the remembrance of those outrages was still recent. An alliance was formed between the city and the Swedish king, by which Magdeburg granted the king a free passage through its gates and territories, with liberty of enlisting soldiers within its boundaries, and on the other hand, obtained promises of effectual protection for its religion and its privileges. The administrator immediately collected troops and commenced hostilities, before Gustavus Adolphus was near enough to cooperate with him. He defeated some imperial detachments in the neighborhood, made a few conquests, and even surprised Hall. But the approach of an imperial army obliged him to retreat hastily, and not without loss, to Magdeburg. Gustavus Adolphus, though displeased with his premature measures, sent Dietrich Falkenberg, an experienced officer, to direct the administrator's military operations, and to assist him with his counsel. Falkenberg was named by the magistrates governor of the town during the war. The prince's army was daily augmented by recruits from the neighboring towns, and he was able for some months to maintain a petty warfare with success. At length Count Pappenheim, having brought his expedition against the Duke of Saxe-Lauenburg to a close, approached the town. Driving the troops of the administrator from their entrenchments, he cut off his communication with Saxony, and closely invested the place. He was soon followed by Tilly, who haughtily summoned the elector forthwith to comply with the Edict of Restitution, to submit to the Emperor's orders, and surrender Magdeburg. The prince's answer was spirited and resolute, and obliged Tilly at once to have recourse to arms. In the meanwhile, the siege was prolonged by the progress of the King of Sweden, which called the Austrian general from before the place, and the jealousy of the officers who conducted the operations in his absence delayed for some months the fall of Magdeburg. On the 30th March, 1631, Tilly returned to push the siege with vigor. The outworks were soon carried, and Falkenberg, after withdrawing the garrisons from the points which he could no longer hold, destroyed the bridge over the Elbe. As his troops were barely sufficient to defend the extensive fortifications, the suburbs of Sudenburg and Neustadt were abandoned to the enemy, who immediately laid them in ashes. Pappenheim, now separated from Tilly, crossed the Elbe at Schonenbeck and attacked the town from the opposite side. The garrison, reduced by the defense of the outworks, scarcely exceeded 2,000 infantry and a few hundred horse, a small number for so extensive and irregular a fortress. To supply this deficiency, the citizens were armed, a desperate expedient which produced more evils than those it prevented. 
the citizens, at best but indifferent soldiers, by their disunion threw the town into confusion. The poor complained that they were exposed to every hardship and danger, while the rich, by hiring substitutes, remained at home in safety. These rumors broke out at last in open mutiny. Indifference succeeded to zeal, weariness and negligence took the place of vigilance and foresight. Dissension, combined with growing scarcity, gradually produced a feeling of despondence. Many began to tremble at the desperate nature of their undertaking, and the magnitude of the power to which they were opposed. But religious zeal, an ardent love of liberty, an invincible hatred of the Austrian yoke, and the expectation of speedy relief, banished as yet the idea of a surrender, and divided as they were in everything else, they were united in the resolve to defend themselves to the last extremity. Their hopes of succor were apparently well-founded. They knew that the confederacy of Leipzig was arming. They were aware of the near approach of Gustavus Adolphus. Both were alike invested in the preservation of Magdeburg, and a few days might bring the king of Sweden before its walls. All this was also known to Tilly, who therefore was anxious to make himself speedily master of the place. With this view, he had dispatched a trumpeter with letters to the administrator, the commandant, and the magistrates, offering terms of capitulation, but he received for answer that they would rather die than surrender. A spirited sally of the citizens also convinced him that their courage was as earnest as their words, while the king's arrival at Potsdam, with the incursions of the Swedes as far as Zerbst, filled him with uneasiness, but raised the hopes of the garrison. A second trumpeter was now dispatched, but the more moderate tone of his demands increased the confidence of the besieged, and unfortunately their negligence also. The besiegers had now pushed their approaches as far as the ditch, and vigorously cannonaded the fortifications from the abandoned batteries. One tower was entirely overthrown, but this did not facilitate an assault, as it fell sidewise upon the wall and not into the ditch. Notwithstanding the continual bombardment, the walls had not suffered much, and the fireballs which were intended to set the town in flames were deprived of their effect by the excellent precautions adopted against them. But the ammunition of the besieged was nearly expended, and the cannon of the town gradually ceased to answer the fire of the imperialists. Before a new supply could be obtained, Magdeburg would be either relieved or taken. The hopes of the besieged were on the stretch, and all eyes anxiously directed towards the quarter in which the Swedish banners were expected to appear. Gustavus Adolphus was near enough to reach Magdeburg within three days. Security grew with hope, which all things contributed to augment. On the 9th of May, the fire of the imperialists was suddenly stopped, and the cannon withdrawn from several of the batteries. A death-like stillness reigned in the imperial camp. The besieged were convinced that deliverance was at hand. Both citizens and soldiers left their posts upon the ramparts early in the morning to indulge themselves after their long toils with the refreshment of sleep, but it was indeed a dear sleep and a frightful awakening. Tilly had abandoned the hope of taking the town, before the arrival of the Swedes, by the means which he had hitherto adopted. He therefore determined to raise the siege, but first to hazard a general assault. The plan, however, was attended with great difficulties, as no breach had been effected, and the works were scarcely injured. But the council of war assembled on this occasion, declared for an assault, citing the example of Maestrich, which had been taken early in the morning while the citizens and soldiers were reposing themselves. The attack was to be made simultaneously on four points, 
the night betwixt the 9th and 10th of May, was employed in the necessary preparations. Everything was ready and awaiting the signal, which was to be given by cannon at five o'clock in the morning. The signal, however, was not given for two hours later, during which Tilly, who was still doubtful of success, again consulted the council of war. Pappenheim was ordered to attack the works of the new town, where the attempt was favored by a sloping rampart, and a dry ditch of moderate depth. The citizens and soldiers had mostly left the walls, and the few who remained were overcome with sleep. This general, therefore, found little difficulty in mounting the wall at the head of his troops. Falkenberg, roused by the report of musketry, hastened from the townhouse, where he was employed in dispatching Tilly's second trumpeter, and hurried with all the force he could hastily assemble toward the gates of the new town, which was already in the possession of the enemy. Beaten back, this intrepid general flew to another quarter, where a second party of the enemy were preparing to scale the walls. After an ineffectual resistance, he fell in the commencement of the action. The roaring of musketry, the pealing of the alarm bells, and the growing tumult apprised the awakening citizens of their danger. Hastily arming themselves, they rushed in blind confusion against the enemy. Still some hope of repulsing the besiegers remained, but the governor being killed, their efforts were without plan and cooperation, and at last their ammunition began to fail them. In the meanwhile, two other gates, hitherto unattacked, were stripped of their defenders to meet the urgent danger within the town. The enemy quickly availed themselves of this confusion to attack these posts. The resistance was nevertheless spirited and obstinate, until four imperial regiments at length, masters of the ramparts, fell upon the garrison in the rear and completed their rout. Amidst the general tumult, a brave captain named Schmidt, who still headed a few of the more resolute against the enemy, succeeded in driving them to the gates. Here he fell mortally wounded, and with him expired the hopes of Magdeburg. Before noon, all the works were carried, and the town was in the enemy's hands. Two gates were now opened by the storming party for the main body, and Tilly marched in with part of his infantry. Immediately occupying the principal streets, he drove the citizens with pointed cannon into their dwellings, there to await their destiny. They were not long held in suspense. A word from Tilly decided the fate of Magdeburg. Even a more humane general would in vain have recommended mercy to such soldiers, but Tilly never made the attempt. Left by their general silence masters of the lives of all the citizens, the soldiery broke into the houses to satiate their most brutal appetites. The prayers of innocence excited some compassion in the hearts of the Germans, but none in the rude breasts of Pappenheim's Walloons. Scarcely had the savage cruelty commenced, when the other gates were thrown open, and the cavalry, with the fearful hordes of the Croats, poured in upon the devoted inhabitants. Here commenced a scene of horrors for which history has no language, poetry no pencil, neither innocent childhood nor helpless old age, neither youth, sex, rank, nor beauty, could disarm the fury of the conquerors. Wives are abused in the arms of their husbands, daughters at the feet of their parents, and the defenseless sex exposed to the double sacrifice of virtue and life. No situation, however obscure or however sacred, escaped the rapacity of the enemy. In a single church, 53 women were found beheaded. The Croats amused themselves with throwing children into the flames, Pappenheim's walloons with stabbing infants at the mother's breast. Some officers of the League, horror-struck at this dreadful scene, ventured to remind Tilly that he had it in his power to stop the carnage. 
Return in an hour was his answer. I will see what I can do. The soldiers must have some reward for his danger and toils. These horrors lasted with unabated fury, till at last the smoke and flames proved a check to the plunderers. To augment the confusion, and to divert the resistance of the inhabitants, the imperialists had, in the commencement of the assault, fired the town in several places. The wind rising rapidly spread the flames, till the blaze became universal. Fearful indeed was the tumult amid clouds of smoke, heaps of dead bodies, the clash of swords, the crash of falling ruins, and streams of blood. The atmosphere glowed, and the intolerable heat forced at last even the murderers to take refuge in their camp. In less than twelve hours, this strong, populous, and flourishing city, one of the finest in Germany, was reduced to ash, with the exception of two churches and a few houses. The administrator, Christian William, after receiving several wounds, was taken prisoner, with three of the burgomasters, most of the officers and magistrates having already met an enviable death. The avarice of the officers had saved four hundred of the richest citizens, in the hope of extorting from them an exorbitant ransom. But this humanity was confined to the officers of the League, whom the ruthless barbarity of the imperialists caused to be regarded as guardian angels. Scarcely had the fury of the flames abated, when the imperialists returned to renew the pillage amid the ruins and ashes of the town. Many were suffocated by the smoke, many found rich booty in the cellars where the citizens had concealed their more valuable effects. On the 13th of May, Tilly himself appeared in the town after the streets had been cleared of ash and dead bodies. Horrible and revolting to humanity was the scene that presented itself. The living crawling from under the dead, children wandering about with heart-rending cries, calling for their parents, and infants still sucking the breasts of their lifeless mothers. More than 6,000 bodies were thrown into the Elbe to clear the streets. A much greater number had been consumed by the flames. The whole number of the slain was reckoned at not less than 30,000. The entrance of the general, which took place on the 14th, put a stop to the plunder, and saved the few who had hitherto contrived to escape. About a thousand people were taken out of the cathedral, where they had remained three days and two nights, without food, and in momentary fear of death. Tilly promised them quarter, and commanded bread to be distributed among them. The next day a solemn mass was performed in the cathedral, and a te deum sung amidst the discharge of artillery. The imperial general rode through the streets, that he might be able, as an eyewitness, to inform his master that no such conquest had been made since the destruction of Troy and Jerusalem. Nor was this an exaggeration, whether we consider the greatness, importance, and prosperity of the city raised, or the fury of its ravagers. In Germany the tidings of the dreadful fate of Magdeburg caused triumphant joy to the Roman Catholics, while it spread terror and consternation among the Protestants. Loudly and generally they complained against the king of Sweden, who, with so strong a force, and in the very neighborhood, had left an allied city to its fate. Even the most reasonable deemed his inaction inexplicable, and lest he should lose irretrievably the good will of the people, for whose deliverance he had engaged in this war, Gustavus was under the necessity of publishing to the world a justification of his own conduct. He had attacked, and on the 16th April carried Landsberg, when he was apprised of the danger of Magdeburg. He resolved immediately to march to the relief of that town, and he moved with all his cavalry and ten regiments of infantry towards the Spree. But the position which he held in Germany made it necessary that he should not move forward without securing his rear. 
in traversing a country where he was surrounded by suspicious friends and dangerous enemies, and where a single premature movement might cut off his communication with his own kingdom, the utmost vigilance and caution were necessary. The elector of Brandenburg had already opened the fortress of Custrin to the falling imperialists, and closed the gates against their pursuers. If now Gustavus should fail in his attack upon Tilly, the elector might again open his fortress to the imperialists, and the king, with an enemy both in front and rear, would be irrecoverably lost. In order to prevent this contingency, he demanded that the elector should allow him to hold the fortresses of Custrin and Spandau, till the siege of Magdeburg should be raised. Nothing could be more reasonable than this demand. The services which Gustavus had lately rendered the elector, by expelling the imperialists from Brandenburg, claimed his gratitude, while the past conduct of the Swedes in Germany entitled them to confidence. But by the surrender of his fortresses, the elector would in some measure make the king of Sweden master of his country. Besides that, by such a step, he must at once break with the emperor and expose his state to his future vengeance. The elector's struggle with himself was long and violent, but pusillanimity and self-interest for a while prevailed. Unmoved by the fate of Magdeburg, cold in the cause of religion and the liberties of Germany, he saw nothing but his own danger, and this anxiety was greatly stimulated by his minister, von Schwarzenberg, who was secretly in the pay of Austria. In the meantime, the Swedish troops approached Berlin, and the king took up his residence with the elector. When he witnessed the timorous hesitation of that prince, he could not restrain his indignation. My road is to Magdeburg, said he, not for my own advantage, but for that of the Protestant religion. If no one will stand by me, I shall immediately retreat, conclude a peace with the emperor, and return to Stockholm. I am convinced that Ferdinand will readily grant me whatever conditions I may require. But if Magdeburg is once lost, and the emperor relieved from all fear of me, then it is for you to look to yourselves and the consequences. This timely threat, and perhaps, too, the aspect of the Swedish army, which was strong enough to obtain by force what was refused to entreaty, brought at last the elector to his senses, and Spandau was delivered into the hands of the Swedes. The king had now two routes to Magdeburg. One westward led through an exhausted country, and filled with the enemy's troops, who might dispute with him the passage of the Elbe. The other more to the southward, by Dessau and Wittenberg, where bridges were to be found for crossing the Elbe, and where supplies could be easily drawn from Saxony. But he could not avail himself of the latter without the consent of the elector, whom Gustavus had good reason to distrust. Before setting out on his march, therefore, he demanded from that prince a free passage and liberty for purchasing provisions for his troops. His application was refused, and no remonstrances could prevail on the elector to abandon his system of neutrality. While the point was still in dispute, the news of the dreadful fate of Magdeburg arrived. Tilly announced its fall to the Protestant princes in the tone of a conqueror, and lost no time in making the most of the general consternation. The influence of the emperor, which had sensibly declined during the rapid progress of Gustavus, after this decisive blow rose higher than ever and the change was speedily visible in the imperious tone he adopted towards the Protestant states. The decrees of the Confederation of Leipzig were annulled by a proclamation, the convention itself suppressed by an imperial decree, and all the refractory states threatened with the fate of Magdeburg. As the executor of this imperial mandate, 
Tilly immediately ordered troops to march against the Bishop of Bremen, who was a member of the Confederacy, and had himself enlisted soldiers. The terrified bishop immediately gave up his forces to Tilly, and signed the revocation of the acts of the Confederation. An imperial army, which had lately returned from Italy under the command of Count Furstenberg, acted in the same manner toward the administrator of Württemberg. The duke was compelled to submit to the edict of restitution, and all the decrees of the emperor, and even to pay a monthly subsidy of a hundred thousand dollars, for the maintenance of the imperial troops. Similar burdens were inflicted upon Ulm and Nuremberg, and the entire circles of Franconia and Swabia. The hand of the emperor was stretched in terror over all Germany. The sudden preponderance, more in appearance perhaps than in reality, which he had obtained by this blow, carried him beyond the bounds even of the moderation which he had hitherto observed, and misled him into hasty and violent measures, which at last turned the wavering resolution of the German princes in favor of Gustavus Adolphus. Injurious as the immediate consequences of the fall of Magdeburg were to the Protestant cause, its remoter effects were most advantageous. The past surprise made way for active resentment, despair inspired courage, and the German freedom rose like a phoenix from the ashes of Magdeburg. Among the princes of the Leipzig Confederation, the Elector of Saxony and the Landgrave of Hesse were the most powerful and until they were disarmed, the universal authority of the emperor was unconfirmed. Against the Landgrave, therefore, Tilly first directed his attack, and marched straight from Magdeburg into Thuringia. During this march, the territories of Saxe-Ernest and Schwarzburg were laid waste, and Frankenhausen plundered before the very eyes of Tilly, and laid in ashes with impunity. The unfortunate peasant paid dear for his master's attachment to the interests of Sweden. Erfurt, the key of Saxony and Franconia, was threatened with a siege, but redeemed itself by a voluntary contribution of money and provisions. From thence, Tilly dispatched his emissaries to the Landgrave, demanding of him the immediate disbanding of his army, a renunciation of the League of Leipzig, the reception of imperial garrisons into his territory and fortresses, and the necessary contributions and the declarations of friendship or hostility. Such was the treatment which a prince of the empire was compelled to submit to from a servant of the emperor. But these extravagant demands acquired a formidable weight from the power which had supported them, and the dreadful fate of Magdeburg, still fresh in the memory of the Landgrave, tended still farther to enforce them. Admiral, therefore, was the intrepidity of the Landgrave's answer. To admit foreign troops into his capital and fortresses, the Landgrave is not disposed. His troops he requires for his own purposes, as for an attack, he can defend himself. If General Tilly wants money or provisions, let him go to Munich, where there is plenty of both. The eruption of two bodies of imperial troops into Hesse-Cassel was the immediate result of the spirited reply, but the Landgrave gave them so warm a reception that they could effect nothing, and just as Tilly was preparing to follow with his whole army to punish the unfortunate country for the firmness of its sovereign, the movements of the King of Sweden recalled him to another quarter. Gustavus Adolphus had learned the fate of Magdeburg with deep regret, and the demand now made by the elector George William, in terms of their agreement for the restoration of Spandau, greatly increased this feeling. The loss of Magdeburg had rather augmented than lessened the reasons which made the possession of the fortress so desirable, and the nearer became the necessity of a decisive battle between himself and Tilly, 
the more unwilling he felt to abandon the only place which, in the event of a defeat, could ensure him a refuge. After a vain endeavor, by entreaties and representations, to bring over the elector to his views, whose coldness and lukewarmness daily increased, he gave orders to his general to evacuate Spandau, but at the same time declared to the elector that he would henceforth regard him as an enemy. To give weight to this declaration, he appeared with his whole force before Berlin. I will not be worse treated than the imperial generals, was his reply to the ambassadors whom the bewildered elector dispatched to his camp. Your master has received them into his territories, furnished them with all necessary supplies, ceded to them every place which they required, and yet, by all these concessions, he could not prevail upon them to treat his subjects with common humanity. All that I require of him is security, a moderate sum of money, and provisions for my troops. In return, I promise to protect his country, and to keep the war at a distance from him. On these points, however, I must insist, and my brother the elector must instantly determine to have me as a friend, or to see his capital plundered. This decisive tone produced a due impression, and the cannon pointed against the town put an end to the doubts of George William. In a few days, a treaty was signed by which the elector engaged to furnish a monthly subsidy of $30,000, to leave Spandau in the king's hands, and to open Custrin at all times to the Swedish troops. This now open alliance of the elector of Brandenburg with the Swedes excited no less displeasure at Vienna than did formerly the similar procedure of the Duke of Pomerania, but the changed fortune which now attended his arms obliged the emperor to confine his resentment to words. The king's satisfaction on this favorable event was increased by the agreeable intelligence that Griswold, the only fortress which the imperialists still held in Pomerania, had surrendered, and that the whole country was now free of the enemy. He appeared once more in this duchy, and was gratified at the sight of the general joy which he had caused to the people. A year had elapsed since Gustavus first entered Germany, and this event was now celebrated by all Pomerania as a national festival. Shortly before, the Tsar of Moscow had sent ambassadors to congratulate him, to renew his alliance, and even to offer him troops. He had great reason to rejoice at the friendly disposition of Russia, as it was indispensable to his interests that Sweden itself should remain undisturbed by any dangerous neighbor during the war in which he himself was engaged. Soon after, his queen, Maria Eleonora, landed in Pomerania, with a reinforcement of 8,000 Swedes, and the arrival of 6,000 English under the Marquis of Hamilton, requires more particular notice, because this is all that history mentions of the English during the Thirty Years' War. End of Part 6